You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me today are Perry DeAngelis. Yes, how are you all? Bob Novella. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone in the world. And Jay Novella. Hello, Governor. How are, y'all, how are you guys doing tonight? Good, Steve. Pretty right. good, buddy. It's all right. Pretty good. So I got Hanging got in. a couple of uh, follow up pieces in the news item news items section of our show. Uh, the first is an update on the South Park and Scientology hubbub. Yeah, as we talked about Isaac Hayes. last week, Isaac Hayes, uh, who does the voice of Chef, quit the show South Park to protest their religious intolerance, by which he meant. Oh. The fact that they dared to make fun of his religion, Scientology. Well, apparently, uh, the plot thickens. This is actually part of a more coordinated uh, attack, if you will, by Scientology on South Park. Apparently, Tom Cruise uh, has threatened not to do any publicity for the upcoming Mission Impossible 3 movie unless the Comedy Central, the makers of South Park... Um, agree not to re-air the Scientology episode, an episode that made absolutely relentless fun of, of Tom Cruise and the beliefs of Scientologists. And was accurate. Now, the connection here is that Viacom, I believe, has a stake in both Comedy Central and in Paramount Pictures. That's right. Viacom now, guys, owns both. guys, it says that reportedly Tom Cruise objected, but it's also saying that a spokesperson for Cruise denied that he made he made the threat. So, I mean, where's this rumor coming from? What's the source? That's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I, I did note that, that he would he was not admitting that that's what, that is, in fact, what happened. So, I don't... The, the article did not cite a specific source. But I think it, that know, that is... That, I think the, the uh, creators of South Park, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, oh, are, maybe they... uh, are claiming this. They quoted this saying... So, Scientology, you have won this battle, but the million-year war for Earth has just begun. Temporarily, what is it, anazanizing? What is that? I don't, what does that Our mean? episode will not stop us from keeping thetans forever trapped in your pitiful man bodies. That, <laughs> that was their response to... So uh, something to do with Scientology. I guess. Right, exactly. Well, I, I was talking to uh, to a friend of mine about this, and... In order for Matt Stone and Trey Parker to just come up with this whole thing makes absolutely no sense. I mean, there's, they wouldn't jeopardize Isaac Hayes on the show because Chef is one of the most popular characters. There's just no reason for them to make it up. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You mean make up the thing about Cruz? The whole thing. The whole I, thing. I mean, either it happened or it didn't because I just read today that Isaac Hayes, his camp, I think, denied that the whole exchange took place now. Well, mm-hmm. That he's that he's not that he didn't quit the show. He quit the show. Well, I'm just telling you what I read. Well, but he quit the show. I mean, uh, Stone and and Trey, they're talking about it. Yeah, that was widely reported. I mean, he quit the show. It's well, not, it, it is true also that you know the the episode was scheduled to re-air on March 15th, but Comedy Central abruptly pulled it. So something happened. Something happened. Yeah. Something and, happened. And this the, the worst part for me is this nonsense about Isaac Hayes. 
uh, coming up and saying, well, this is about intolerance and all that. It's such a bunch of crap. And Matt Stone said so. He, he says, quote, this is 100% having to do with his faith in Scientology. He has no problem, and he's cashed plenty of checks with our show making fun of Christians, yep. unquote. Yeah. That is so true. Here's a quote from Isaac Hayes, uh, I guess a little bit earlier on while he was doing South Park. He said, hey, let me tell you, I worked years to achieve artistic excellence, and then all of a sudden I get involved in this stupid, crazy, insane cartoon, and now I'm hotter than I've ever been. I love it. I love it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, we'll keep you updated if the, if anything further develops. But he is an absolute hypocritical slime. That is my is. personal opinion. He is. Well, you know, I'm hoping that in in the in the future somebody's thinking about grabbing Cruz for a movie, and it just crosses their mind that hey, wait a second, if there's just any little Scientology hubbub, he might not e- he might not even promote our movie because because uh, he's throwing a little hissy fit. Now I doubt I doubt that's going to happen because it's still Tom Cruise. He's still got a lot of a lot of draw, and they're still going to use him. But I just hope at some point that it, it really comes back and, and bites him in the ass. We could hope, yeah. probably in we vain. We can hope. Right? We can Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a disgrace. To what? To he's Hollywood a, actors? He's a total. <laughs> he's a he's a total disgrace. He's a he, to he's humanity. Totally, maybe <laughs> I, I don't even know where to begin. He's just. I, I abhor him. I, I lost any ounce of of like that I had for him is totally gone. After the the past year, yeah, it's it's unfortunate that he's a damn fine actor. It's <laughs> unfortunate. Uh, he couldn't save War of the Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that movie. <laughs> uh, that movie sucks. Another another follow up. <laughs> not a good movie. <laughs> from this this from South Korea, the scientist uh, Huang Wu Suk, who is the um, the stem cell researcher who was disgraced after it came out that he had faked essentially large portions of his stem cell research, was finally fired from the National University finally. where he worked. So yeah, I had, you know, I get, uh, when I read that article, I was like, oh, he, he wasn't fired already? I was kind of shocked that uh, he, he had already been fired, but I guess they were waiting or for... Or resigned, or, or that he you well, know, just no, stepped down yeah, at that point. Was, uh, they had him on some type fired. of... Uh, Leave of absence business, while they while they figured out what to do. They also revoked his license to conduct embryonic stem cell research. This is the South Korean government. Um, so that it puts a bit of a of a punctuation at the end of that story. That uh, the Raelians have invited him to do research with uh, have their they? with their own form of Scientology and cult and whatever. Yeah, the Raelians uh, are a UFO cult who a f- couple years ago claimed to have cloned the first human. And then essentially, you know, after a completely uncritical, you know, media cycle, it, it basically came out that they, they lied about this just for the millions of dollars of free publicity that it gave them. They it got totally it. worked. The media oh, completely did. bought into it. Who, yeah, who didn't hear about them back then? Yeah. They're another UFO cult, just like Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? There's a Real lot quick, of them. guys, back to Dr. Wu Suk Wang. I guess that's how you pronounce it. Um, I was just I was just flipping through um, like a four or five month old Scientific American, and they have this section um, uh, research leader of the year for 2005, and he was like number one research leader of the year for 2005. Hey, if you're Which, just making stuff up and lying, it's very easy to be <laughs> right. Yeah, it is. But uh, I'm looking <laughs> I'm looking at a website right now, and here they uh, they officially remove him from that. That honored position, so <laughs> good, good. good. Just like they should remove uh, Barry Bonds's home run record, seventy-three, <laughs> for, for pumping you. himself up with steroids. But that's a that's a separate subject for another night. <laughs> that's a different you podcast, know, with, I think. With yeah, a name right. like 
you suck Wang, that guy really, I mean, come on, he better get it straight. Woo, it's woo. Oh, oh excuse me, woo suck Wang. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You have to get it right, Jay. He's out. He's out. <laughs> next case, out. Uh, well, next case. Um, the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, which is a uh, says citizens and scientists for environmental solutions. I always get a little suspicious when I see this. I think this is a legitimate organization, but it, it sounds like a lot of the the um, the front organizations that the Moonies used. They always have these, some, these kind <laughs> yeah, right. of really benign sounding names, yeah. but this is a legitimate organization. They're like professors, professors for, for world, world peace. peace right? Is a Mooney front yeah, organization. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they have uh, sent a letter with over five thousand seven hundred scientists signing to. Um, the congressman of the United States, basically saying that they are um, concerned. The, the the salient point of this piece, uh, Steve, yeah. is the, the, there's this legislation coming up, and they, they feel that it's really going to weaken the Endangered Species Act. And uh, what it says here, they say, that first the legislation transfers the authority of deciding what is the best available science from scientists to political appoint, appointees right. in the Department of the Interior, Second, the legislation requires decisions affecting species to be based on empirical data, effectively eliminating the use of established scientific techniques such as modeling, population surveys, and taxonomic and genetic studies. Wow. It goes on to talk about how it's going to um, change the areas designated uh, as protected habitat. They're going to change it to something... It uh, used to be called critical habitat, and they're going to replace it with something called special value habitat. Right. And then, they, but they say there's no guidelines as to what special value means. No attention to historical habitat or further habitat the species might might occupy, and no requirement or guidelines for habitat protection. So basically, that, that's sort of their main. Yeah, I mean, basically, what we're seeing here are some techniques used by those with a political agenda to take control of this area from scientists. So the first is obvious. They're just going to take certain decision-making out of the hands of scientists and into the hands of politicians. Now, that that strategy is similar, for example, to to efforts to pass laws to require the teaching of intelligent design. It's basically the same thing. You're saying, well, scientists are not going to decide what science is. Politicians are going to decide what science is in in, in the guise of this law. Uh, Isn't it also similar, Steve, with the, in the medical field with HMOs? Is that the same kind of thing? Well, they took decision making away from the practitioners. Well, in a way, yeah, they put it in the hands of bean counters. But right. there, the the agenda was to save money. You know, we're not going to let physicians decide what what tests are appropriate so not to do. politicians, but accountants. Uh, that's that's right. That's right. Right. Although well, sometimes it is politicians. You know, like for example. Chiropractors have been very successful at lobbying uh, state governments to force uh, insurance companies to pay for chiropractic care. Again, using a political process to to subvert a question which should be scientific. But to the best of our knowledge, uh, that group Hope, which I believe is now defunct, a, a gullible ghost group, they were trying to get possession covered uh, medically as a, as a medical. Well, he was pretty. I don't. He wasn't really lobbying for coverage so much as just trying to present demonic possession as a psychiatric diagnosis. That was just pseudoscience. Yeah, I know. I think he was trying for coverage, too. But in any... The the other... Getting back to the concerned scientists, the other 
elements of the strategy here. One is to replace a very specifically defined term, critical habitat, with a vaguely defined term, special value. Again, that gives the politicians wiggle room to essentially do an end run around science. They get to decide what, what land they want to consider special, and they remove any um, scientific criteria or any kind of objective criteria for designating special habitat. Well, who's the force behind this? Whose bright idea was this? It doesn't say who the main supporters are. It's just that it's a bill in the Senate. It would be good to know, though. Well, you know, it's an interesting it's website. Sorry, it's House legislation they're talking about. I took, a, I took a look at the website. I think it's a good site. If people want to go to it, it's uh, www.ucsusa.org. Yeah, it's it'll be in a, it'll be in the notes, of course, along with the podcast. The link will be there. Right. The other strategy, just to complete the uh, the analysis, um, they they want to eliminate or restrict the use of deciding uh, what species are endangered to empirical data. Basically, again, they're trying to decide what qualifies as science, trying to limit the scope of what scientists can do. Uh, to make it harder for them to prove that an ant, that a species is is uh, endangered, so they they can't use uh, legitimate techniques like population surveys and uh, and modeling. They say no, you they're basically raising the bar on the proof. You need to produce empirical data. Again, that's completely arbitrary. Uh, it's not it's not as if you know the mainstream scientists are misusing these other methods. It's just a way of making it harder essentially to, to designate a species as endangered. So they're doing an end around the scientists instead of listening to them. Yeah, it's it's basically the the, the broader concept here. It's politicians tr- trying to use you know these legal mechanisms to do an end run around a process that should be informed by science, not overwhelmed by politics. Which you know that's this is a problem in our government in a much broader sense. Even you know, regardless oh, yeah. of what end of the political spectrum you're on, of course you know we have a Republican administration now, so the emphasis recently has been on the right wing sort of abuse of science. In fact, you know one of our of our previous guests, uh, Chris Mooney, wrote a book, "The Republican War on Science." But you know they, both ends of the political ex- uh, spectrum abuse science for their own political agenda. The, the radical pro-environmentalists are just as likely to, to distort the facts as the anti-environmentalists, for example. So in, in, many, in many areas where it's energy policy, environmental policy, etc., um, that are driven chiefly by, by scientific data, you know, we really need to find a process that, that allows science to be at the forefront of these of this decision making. Unfortunately, they, they they tend to get mired in politics, and politicians are just getting more savvy at manipulating the scientific process, and this is just another example of that. Well, finally in the news uh, this week, Noah's Ark has cropped up again. Now, of course, you know, it doesn't take a biblical scholar to, to know the story of Noah's Ark. Uh, this is early on in, in, the, um, in Genesis, the world was um, covered in, in a worldwide flood. God spoke to Noah, warned him of this, instructed him to build an ark, put two of every animal on there. Actually, I think it was all of the it was two of every uh, predator and seven of all the domesticated herbivores. Really? Yeah. Hmm. But basically, you know, fill the ark with animals to to perpetuate their species. They survived the flood. The the ark came to rest at the top of a mountain. You know, um, in modern times, biblical scholars have interpreted that as Mount Ararat, 
Uh, actually, I think that even goes back into medieval times, the, the, the thinking that that was Mount Ararat. And uh, I remember in the 1970s, there was a movie In Search of Noah's Ark where they remember you know, that? had... Remember that movie? So there was yeah. a, lot of, a lot of blurry photos of outlines of alleged ships. And I remember even at that time, and I was very young at the time, and I was still in my formative you know, ages, it, it, it occurred to me that you know they were promoting different blurry photographs that were mutually inconsistent. You know, they were mutually exclusive. They were looked like two different kinds of ships. Steve, do you remember uh, the Leonard Nimoy show? What was that show? In Search of. In Search of. In Search yeah. of. Remember the cheesy yeah, program they had on it? was horrible, horrible show. I used to buy that show hook, line, and sinker when I was a kid. That was pure mystery mongering, that show. It's yeah. really terrible. I was so young and stupid, though, I just loved it. I believed every freaking thing that happened on there. Well, now... If you watch, it now, if you watch that show now, it makes you sick. It is. I mean, well, yeah, like, oh, my it, goodness. Of course, Jay. It was Spock. Come on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, come on. It's true. So... They claimed, you know, there was this big ship on top of Mount Ararat, but you know, the it's in a um, a militarily sensitive area of Turkey, so they, they've never let like expeditions go up there. Well, these days, you don't you don't really need to send an expedition to the top of a mountain. You could just you know, position a satellite over there. Exactly. Have you guys been playing with right. Google Earth? That is awesome. Oh, I love it. Love what it. What an awesome application. You could you know look, view the entire world. Uh, with a mosaic of satellite images, you know. Of course, the first thing everybody does is find that their own house, which is funny. It's fun to do that. But so anyway, you know, we have pretty high detailed satellite images of pretty much most of the most of the surface of the world. So um, you know, some scientists poring over satellite images, and this has been happening for a while now. This is just the, the latest in, in this phenomenon. Think they see. Noah's Ark in these satellite images. The one being promoted now, we'll have it on our website. It's, you know, it's pretty pathetic. It, to me, it looks like a, a natural, uh, windswept mountain edge. You know, mountain geological feature. Uh, it's only, you know, quote unquote, boat shaped in the most, you know, generic sense. In that. It's basically a very elongated kind of oval shape. Steve, that turned out to actually be a mobile home with a Chevy pickup parked out front. Yeah, I think, th- I think you may be right. Not surprising. So, again, promoters of the, uh, the possibility that this could be Noah's Ark <laughs> emphasize the, the similarities, the fact that this is sort of vaguely hull-shaped. And they are very dismissive of the apparent inconsistencies. For example, it's twice as big as the boat that is described in Genesis. And it's also the wrong shape. It's not the more of a box shape that is described and that has been classically uh, interpreted. It is more of traditionally, you know, oval oval shaped, pointy at the, at the, at the you know, quote-unquote bow and stern. But they say, but it has the right ratio. So they're impressed by the right ratio, but they're, they're not concerned by the fact that it's, well, twice as big as it's supposed to be and it's the wrong shape. Uh, it also doesn't have any features that would distinguish it from a natural geological shape. And looking at it, you know, it, it looks like a piece of mountain. Have you guys seen this picture? No. Uh-huh. I, I sent it to you. I saw it. I you saw it did. on television. Yeah, yeah, I, I, saw it. I saw it when it I came saw it. It looks like, abs- it looks like nothing. It, yeah. It's worse than the face on Mars. I was going to say, it's well, the same thing worse. as the face on Mars or the, the canals of Mars or whatever. It's, it's just ridiculous. You know, the, the using um, either 
planes for flyover and now, of course, satellite images to try to identify um, features on the ground is, is, is used commonly, but, but archaeologists and geologists, etc., would tell you that you always need on-the-ground confirmation because you just can't tell what things are from these, you know, um, bird's-eye view sort of two-dimensional images. You just can't tell what they are. So uh, without on-the-ground confirmation, this is just another splotch on a satellite image. Of course it is, of course. And it is no different than the face on Mars or the pyramids of uh, of Mars or whatever. It's ridiculous. Why, you know, my, my question is, why even bring it up? Why make any kind of point out of it until you send somebody there? At this point, who cares that they saw something that might look because like... Because a lot of people put a lot of... A lot of their lives in this sort of faith, Jay, it means a lot to a lot of people. Right. I mean, you know, a responsible scientist would would do that, Jay, would mount the expedition, would get the, the higher resolution images or whatever before going public with this. Again, this is really just sensationalism. You know? But it Steve, hardly this, matters. It, it hardly this matters, pick? in my opinion, too. If you send somebody up there and they don't find anything, they'll just say the Turks moved it, they're protecting it, they're Muslims, they burned it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, what will happen is it'll it'll turn into like, oh, here's another shred of proof that it exists, but no one will ever bother to prove it or disprove it. Yeah, it won't so. matter to the to the hardcore true believers, but you know, to right. the public at large, it will marginalize it. Yeah, it's yeah, like you know, with the face right. on Mars, it was the same thing. You had the, the sort picture of, should marginalize it. Excuse me, the, the picture uh, should marginalize it. So it's so it's you're it's, you're you're correct, but right. You, Perhaps you may give people too much credit, but it should. <laughs> but I remember, I, I remember with the face on Mars, the original images were very low resolution. Right, you could really only see half the face. Yeah, what was it, 1977? It was just vaguely pictures. reminiscent of a human right. face. And then we saw the high resolution images. <laughs> right, nothing. And like it looked joke. like yeah, just like like a like, natural sort of mountain plateau. Like a mesa, you know, it really, you could see in very high detail that there was nothing, it was completely natural, there was nothing about it which looked anything like a human face. It was just really the trick of shadows and the particular angle that the previous lower resolution pictures were taken. And, well, and then, and then you go to find David, and then you go to find David Hoagland, who yeah. uh, perpetuated this myth, and they go to ask him a question about, oh, what about these new photos? And he's nowhere to be found or to comment yeah. on. Oh, well, he, had, that's, that's he made comments. Comment. He made comments. His comment was, NASA, after after their satellite, their their probe got all the information they could out of that region, dropped an atom bomb on it, and blew it up. Oh, is that? His That's what he said. Oh yeah. Well, that uh, makes that, he that also makes more said, sense than his original theory. He also <laughs> said, you know, and, and others tried to dismiss the higher resolution photos by saying, well, they've been manipulated. They've been photographically enhanced. Well, first of all, that's not true. Uh, the, they haven't been manipulated. They were just processed because like all cameras, all digital cameras take raw photos. Even if you have like an SLR digital camera, it takes pictures in a raw format, format and then it has to do some kind of processing to give it color and whatever, and you save it in a, in a format like a JPEG or some kind of you know more more uh, more user friendly format. Well, it was the same thing. It just did sort of the minimal kind of processing that you would do to any digital photo, but it wasn't altered in any way. It was also completely hypocritical because they were they were okay with the manipulations that were done with the earlier photographs. The the earlier photographs were even more filtered. Than, than the newer ones that they were dismissing. Steve, um, if they hit it with a nuke, wouldn't there be a crater there? 
You know, wouldn't whatever. It? It's Jay. not like you know. It, it's so <laughs> ridiculous. Like, what did he think? It just kind of like took like a, a brush stroke to it. Listen, and softened it, it up. Uh, a you know, bit. after reading <laughs> Hopeland and listening to this guy, I'm convinced that he's diagnosable. I don't think this guy has any real connection to reality. No. Uh, well, he, plus he's, he's been you know he's been caught in lie after lie yeah. you know about working for NASA and 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 these sorts of things that as well. So that NASA consulted him for his expertise when it turns out that never happened. So he's uh, he's a very shady character. This person, no, definitely. I mean, I I doubt that we'll hear anything more about Noah's Ark. But this is the the, the latest flap. Again, it's just the, the same thing again. An indistinct photo that's vaguely suggestive, but. Not at all compelling. If anything further comes of it, we'll certainly keep you updated. Uh, Steve, before we move on, I just want to say a quick word about our, our um, previous topic about um, trying to protect science in, in uh, the Endangered Species Act and federal research in general. While I could not find in this short time who sponsored the proposed changes to the act, I imagine it was Amalgam, the guys that are trying to stop it in the House are Henry Waxman, Democrat from California, mm-hmm. Bart Gordon, a Democrat from Tennessee. Their bill is called Restore Scientific Integrity to Federal Research and Policymaking Act. And um, what, I de- what, I, what I noticed was that in the Senate, the similar bill was written by and is mainly supported by Dick Durbin, Democrat mm-hmm. from Illinois. Now, he's the same guy. That is behind the Dietary Supplement Safety Act uh, mm-hmm. of 2003. He hasn't been able to get that one passed yet either. But I'll tell you, when it comes to science, this guy is always right on the mark. Yeah. You know, he's trying to preserve the scientific integrity in federal research in general, and that Dietary Supplement Safety Act is essential. It's you a know, good start. He, I, it's not enough. It doesn't go far enough, but it's a good start. It's a good start, and he can't even get that passed. You know, he must have a science background or he's listening to the right people or yeah, something. I think he's one of the few scientifically literate people on the Hill. I, I, I heard he listens to our podcast. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Senator <laughs> Durbin, you've got my support on these issues. <laughs> I was just inviting him to send us his email. Yes, send us absolutely. an email comment. We want to hear his As we his invite comments. everyone to send us your comments, both good, bad, and indifferent. <laughs> Um, well, so. we're not quite to emails yet. We'll get there in a second. One final, <laughs> one final item before we do move on to the emails. I was doing some follow-up research on the the Bigfoot uh, episode that we did, and and the uh, the Bigfoot proponent was claiming that you know there's research out there with hairs that are that are convincing that you know, unidentified primate hairs, etc. So, which I had I had my research had never uncovered any hairs that were compelling. What I did find was a recent hair analysis. So uh, a few months ago in the Yukon in Canada, there was a Bigfoot sighting, even involving some footprints. Um, a few people you know, thought they saw this large, hairy creature. Later investigation at the site uncovered a tuft of hair. This was a few months ago, Steve? Yeah. Jay, weren't you up in the Yukon a few months ago? <laughs> You can't prove that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. So Where get we this. Can we got the hair? <laughs> a, a DNA uh, analyst agreed to um, to analyze the hair. This was David Coltman, a geneticist. Uh, basically, agreed to, um, to 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 do DNA analysis on the hair. Uh, fortunately, there was there was some DNA. You know, again, hair itself does not contain DNA. You need some of the follicle. What they call the the medulla of the of the hair root, and that that contains some DNA. He was able to extract some DNA from that, and the answer is, you guys, what do you guys think it was? 
Uh, absolutely um, proved Bigfoot's existence, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bison. No big surprise. Ah. Oh. Which is very oh. common, actually, with those Bigfoot hair in the U in Canada often turns out to be bison. That's, this is a very common result. But interestingly, he discovered something else too. He said, "You know, it was it was particularly difficult to amplify the DNA from the sample that we had. That suggests that that hair sample so was very old, or that it had been treated in some way." Uh-huh. Aha. Aha. So what no he, susp- he suspects that someone had used bison, you know, pelt to make a Bigfoot costume, basically. That, that is the implication uh, of this. It wasn't just a fresh bison sample. They, they didn't see a bison walk by and thought it was a Bigfoot. Um, either way, you know, that is the state of the hair analysis uh, for, for Bigfoot. There are no validated hair samples. What, and what Coltman said is, well, if we did find hair from a Bigfoot, what we would expect is that it would have a lot of primate features, but wouldn't specifically match a chimp or a gorilla or a person, but it would be it would look have clear, you know, signs that it would belong to some primate species. Nothing like that has ever been found. There are still a number of of hair samples that have no DNA, so they're just they're just hair samples. And and again, believers uh, put these forward as compelling evidence uh, because whatever they look similar to each other, and uh, you know, whatever they 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 make some very hand waving arguments that really don't relate to any gold standard or or any solid evidence. But to date, there's no hair with that had amplifiable DNA that um, did not either that did not match a known local animal, like say. So, the Steve, bison. is this is this specifically talking about the hair sample that the um, the guest that you had on was referring to? No, no, he didn't. Re- he did not refer to any specific hair samples during the show. He just said, sort of generally, there are hair samples that are not that could not be matched or whatever. So my later, sort of more detailed research did not reveal that. I, I, I did uncover that ones that were put forward that have been DNA analyzed have been shown to be like bison and other known species. And this, yep. this, was, this was the most recent one, this one in the Yukon. Well, let's, let's move on to uh, emails. Now, if, if those who listened to the show last week, I noted that we had only one email uh, in the intervening week. Turns out that Bob was holding out on me. Bob's been getting a lot of the email that comes directly off of the website that wasn't sent to me specifically. But he did forward all those emails to me. And we did have, on top of that, a pulse of emails. So we have about a dozen or so uh, in the last week. Um, I can't, we don't have time to read all of them. I did pick out a few to read. Maybe we'll get to the, some of the other ones in, in later shows. So the first email comes from uh, Australia. This is from a gentleman who signs his name as Yukasan. He says, uh, Dr. Chachua in Australia has contended that his serum cure for cancer has been refused testing by the establishment. He claims to have been rejected out of hand, although his lectures were widespread and and some were given before scientific bodies. Not being an informed biochemist or anything near the medic profession, your answers are solicited. Another question is on spontaneous remission arising from bacterial infections, usually with high fever. Not practiced, but Coley's toxin were once used with recorded results. With lawsuits abounding today, it is no wonder bacterial toxins are no longer administered. That's actually not true. I'll tell you about that in a second. Also, some remissions were recorded with the accidental use of smallpox vaccine. I'm trying to avoid quackery while looking for effective treatments. Your comments, please. Well, so starting with Dr. Chachua, 
you know, this guy is clearly in the mold of uh, a group of cancer quacks. Uh, what these people do is um, prey upon people who have you know either cancer, whether it's incurable or not. You know, sometimes they may you know lure people away from treatments which actually have a chance of working, and they basically claim that they know the true underlying cause of cancer, and it's, it is something which is treatable by their particular cocktail or treatment. Um, ones that are that are well known are Lauren Day, Stanislaw Brzezinski, Hulda Clark, and this guy Sam Chichua. Hmm. So these are four of probably the more prominent ones. There's a good article describing the sort of the commonalities between these four on the Australian skeptic sites. We, I linked to that from uh, the notes page for this, po- this podcast, the Australian Council Against Health Fraud. They have a very good overview article about this. And they point out a few things. The fact that they, they all claim that they're miraculously effective, like either you know, greater than 90%, greater than 99% effective cure is being suppressed by the establishment. And that's the only way to explain how a cure which is so effective would not be generally or widely known. It's pure nonsense. I, mean, I, wrote, an, I wrote an article about this that actually was a book chapter in uh, Science Meets Alternative Medicine a number of years ago that really describing why in detail that the sort of establishment suppressing a known cure for cancer uh, story is completely illogical and untenable. Um, you, you, if there were such a cure, first of all, nobody would have the power or the ability to keep it out of every research lab in the world. I mean, somebody would be able to show and prove that it worked. If it, also, if there were a cure for cancer, that would, some, that would somehow tell us something intrinsic about the cause and the nature of cancer itself. And you just couldn't avoid it with all of the cancer research that's going on. They also commit these you know, broad, grand conspiracy theories. I mean, you would have to involve you know, large numbers of people and, and institutions and governments over many generations systematically, you know, suppressing uh, this, you know, scientific knowledge uh, without anyone, you know, ever coming out. So um, it's completely absurd. Also, there, there are arguments for why the pharmaceutical companies would suppress their cures don't make any sense. They said, well, because they, they would lose money from their, their drug cures, uh, when in fact, they would, wouldn't they just market these as, as cures for cancer? And even if they couldn't get a patent on it, imagine the PR value to a company, the, the pharmaceutical company that cured cancer. I mean, just imagine, who would turn that down? Uh, right. right? And, and of course. They, then they would say, well, you know, they would lose money off their drugs with patents. But you know what? That, first of all, that argument's absurd. But it's not only absurd, after 20 years, it's, it's, it's completely untenable because the patents on all of their drugs would have run out over that course of time. And why would they be researching new ones you know, while there's this cure for cancer hanging out there? Also, the yeah. final thing is, if no company is going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars researching a cure for cancer, they have no, intent of market, no intention of marketing. So you might say that they haven't done the research, but you can't say that they know about it and are suppressing it. It makes absolutely no sense. Anyway, there are other, there are other major problems with it as well that I won't go into. I mean, imagine if it was found out. Well, here's the company that cured cancer and then didn't and tell then anybody. Hello, goodbye, right. done, over and out. Right, right. Yeah, it just it doesn't make any sense. The, the, the article that we, uh, I refer to uh, also points out the fact that the four, the, the four uh, cancer quacks that are mentioned all say that you know, the establishment theory of cancer is wrong, 
my, can, my theory of cancer is correct, but all of their theories are different and mutually exclusive, yet they all support each other. The only thing that they have in common is that they're anti-establishment. Yeah. The fact that one person is promoting a, an infectious you know, theory of cancer, another one is promoting, you know, Brzezinski says that you know, people with cancer lack these proteins called antineoplastins. Others are saying it's nutritional. Uh, this guy says it's, uh, it's an immune deficiency. So they all have these mutually exclusive different theories of, of cancer, but they're all happy with each other as long as they're anti-establishment. But at least three of them have to be wrong, right? If, w- if any one of them is correct, the other three have to be completely 100% wrong. Uh, although I think it's likely that all four of them are completely 100% wrong. <laughs> uh, wrong. So, and the other thing that they have in common is the utter lack of scientific evidence to support their theories. Uh, despite the fact that they make tons of money, uh, that they, um, this one guy, Chichua, just made $11 million in a lawsuit against... Uh, against Ching. Yeah, right, against yeah. a, a yeah. university. Against Mount Sinai, uh, basically he claimed that they um, br- had a breach of contract. He had a contract for them to do research. They breached their contract, and some gullible jury gave this guy eleven million dollars. So he can't say he doesn't have the money to do the research. I mean that yeah. that theory fall that you know claim falls on on deaf ears after a while as well. It's the typical quack clinic pattern: fantastical claim, anti-establishment conspiracy theories claims that you're too busy curing people and saving lives to actually do the research or publish anything in the scientific literature, and there's a conspiracy against you anyway. And then you fight politically to subvert the, the scientific process. Again, and, and, gen- and general, sorry, general science illiteracy causes these ridiculous jury verdicts. Right, right. Like the, like the jury that awarded a woman a million dollars because the MRI took her psychic powers away. I yep. mean, uh, so- it's outrageous. That's unreal. Steve, I have my own ideas, but you're the doctor here. Why do you think cancer, in particular, is so susceptible to these to this sort of pseudoscience? It's the psychology of it. I mean, it's such a frightening disease. The more people are frightened, the more they're going to be desperate and, and then flocked into the arms of people who are selling false hope. You know, d- diseases that we can cure or that are not that bad, you know, aren't as susceptible to this. Uh, the second half of his question is Coley's toxins. Now, this is something that goes back a hundred years. Um, this is a, you know, a, Dr. Coley made a legitimate observation that bacteria produce um, proteins which cause tumors to die. In fact, he was the first one to identify a substance which later became known as tumor necrosis factor. It is uh, a substance which is secreted by cells in the immune system and uh, in response to um, to tumors and infections, and it's 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 part of our immune reactions. How we kill you know bad cells. Uh, you can produce this with bacterial infections. the uh, The problem with this is that, um, as a, thera- a therapeutic agency, is that it may cause you know part of a tumor to necrose, but it doesn't get rid of the cancer. And just you know killing off part of the tumor doesn't really have much of an effect. Uh, also, these toxins are not targeting the the cancer. You know they're they're can kill other cells as well, so it's a it was a you know fairly toxic and ineffective uh, uh, treatment for cancer. Not that uh, again the, the promoters of Coley's toxins say, oh yeah, it's just the the pharmaceutical industry is suppressing this because they want to sell their drugs. But again, you know the, if if it worked, it would have been a legitimate avenue of research and you know pharmaceutical industry and and other. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, cancer research institutes, et cetera, would have found uses for this. I mean, um, and again, it's not this, this idea is not totally absurd. It's just the people who are selling Coley's toxins are just selling snake oil. 
what what they're what they're selling and what they're promoting is not anything which is which is scientific. The writer, however, Yukasan, did make that one comment um, that bacterial toxins are no longer administered. Um, actually, Botox is botulinum toxin is a bacterial toxin, and it has an actually a very broad and growing range of therapeutic effects, and I inject it myself. It has a number of neurological uses um, for you know certain movement disorders, dystonias, etc., and it's actually a lot of active research for, for chronic neuropathic pain. So I don't think, as, as a general principle, we're adverse to using bacterial toxins. They just have to be used scientifically. The next email comes from... Uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Adam Stewart Smith. Adam writes a very a very long email. Again, it'll be on our notes page. I can't read the whole thing, but I'll hit some of the highlights. He says, I am a Ph.D. researcher in paleontology at the University College Dublin, Ireland. I specialize in plesiosaurs, a group of extinct prehistoric aquatic reptiles. Um, I'm sure you are aware uh, that... Nessie's a plesiosaur, by yes, the way. Yes, I'm sure you're aware that plesiosaurs are frequently associated with mythical lake sea <laughs> monsters, most substantiated sightings such as Nessie. There you go. Um, Told you. <laughs> so he says, I'm actually emailing with regard to the science or fiction article of Skepticast number 29, February 8, 2006. The theme was animals. Uh, I got it wrong as usual. I was fooled by option three. The statement, a new species of lizard was discovered in the jungles of New Guinea that gives birth to live young, was actually fictional. In the ensuing discussion, there was a brief debate as to the, to the possibility of reptiles giving birth to live young and how huge a news would how huge the news would be if one were discovered. So he wants to add his two cents, basically, to that part of the discussion. He says, in fact, viviparity has been firmly established in a number of extinct and extant groups of reptiles. So that's giving birth to live young. Fossil evidence, i.e. gravid mothers, indicates that ichthyosaurs, fish-like marine reptiles, and mosasaurs, marine lizards, both certainly gave birth to live young. Um, no direct evidence is known for plesiosaurs, but their close relatives were recently reported in an references a Nature article with embryos in the abdominal region. So plesiosaurs were probably also viviparous. He also says there are a number of uh, live species, uh, species of living snake families are also known to give birth to live young, like the boas. So we just wanted to add that there are some living and extinct uh, reptiles. So it wouldn't be that outrageous if a new lizard were discovered that gave birth to live young, since that adaptation has arisen multiple independent times within the uh, the class of reptiles. Well, I don't, I don't feel I, so bad now about getting that one wrong. Right. I mean, I still think it would be. It still was wrong. It didn't happen, and <laughs> it still would be news. But his point is well taken. Uh, email number three uh, is more of a comment than a question. This comes from David Jones. Davy Jones. <laughs> Hello, Governor. He says, hi, I'm from the UK, and I listen to the podcast. Excellent stuff. Keep it up. By the way, there's a creeping creationism in UK education. Education? At, ah. Yeah, it says, at least in the US, you managed to get it declared unconstitutional. In the UK, not having a written constitution and a Supreme Court, we're at the whim of the executive and its short-term political concerns. Do carry on, David Jones. Well, he's right. It's interesting. I don't know if a lot of Americans maybe don't realize this, but um, you know, there's been a lot of debate recently about the role of the Supreme Court versus the executive branch and the le legislative branch, all peculiar to our country that in, in the UK, there's no constitution. 
and, this, and they don't have a Supreme Court which can declare laws unconstitutional. They don't have a judicial branch which oversees their legislative branch. The legislative branch has the final say on what is law, on what is legal. And they can change that just by passing new laws. So I would really like to know, this is very interesting, this letter. Um, David, I'd like to know more about this. Like, what, Why don't you send us another email and let us know some things that have been passed that have been bothering you or that might be uh, skeptically charged. Yeah, what's what discuss. is the what is the state of the uh, creationism versus evolution uh, battle in the UK? We have obviously reported quite a bit on it, especially in the context of intelligent design in this country over the last year. It's been very active with the Dover trial, etc. Do keep us updated on what's going on in the UK. And maybe we'll Steve, you know, he might be a, an interesting guest at some point too. Perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Hey, David, have your people call my people, okay? Yeah, we'll we'll do lunch <laughs> or something. <laughs> we'll set up a potter. <laughs> the, the the final email that I'm gonna that I'll read uh, this week comes from Raphael. It says, "Dear fellow skeptics, I listen to your podcast and find it to be one of the few intelligent podcasts out there." Well, thank you. I think there are probably a couple others. My awesome. question has to do with my profession. I am an artist, painter, and I find that very often when I engage people in conversation and they find out I am a secular humanist and a skeptic, they ask, how can you be an artist and not believe? Why do people assume that artistic talent has anything to do with the supernatural? Well, I guess the answer to that is I don't know. I don't know why people would assume that. Uh, I guess they think that um, more rational people would tend to be scientific and that artistic expressiveness would tend to be to go along with more of a, a spirituality or, or spiritual belief. I don't yeah, know if there's any, any data to back that up. As if humans couldn't come up with unique ideas on their own, right? Yeah, I, know, I think that people underestimate the amount of creativity that's involved in science. I mean, it is a lot of you know, rigorous, detailed work, but the thing that separates out you know, the brilliant scientists, the successful you know, career scientists uh, from you know the drudge workers are are cre- is creativity is exactly that creativity the ability to think of of new things in new ways, uh, which is which is similar very similar I think to to artists who have to think of things in new ways they just have different talents that they apply that creativity to. Okay. Let's let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. So every week I come up with uh, three science news items. Two of them are genuine, two are science, and one is fiction. One I have made up out of whole cloth. Uh, the challenge is to figure out which one is fake. I often have a theme. The theme for this week, Bob, you're going to like this one. Okay. Oh, God. The, the theme for this week is microbes. Cool. <coughs> I hate microbes. Um, are you Nano guys ready? Nano-sized microbes? <laughs> microscopic sized microbes. Right? <laughs> no, the macroscopic microbes. They're called macrobes. <laughs> now, Steve, oh, you're, ta- you're talking about like bacteria and not like. Uh... Yes. Okay, just slightly. Right. Yep. Okay, you ready? Hey, Item number one. Against two are real, one is fiction. Item number one. Newly bioengineered bacteria can make usable gasoline from plastic waste. Item number two, 3.5 billion years ago, methane-producing bacteria produced global warming, which was helpful for life's early development. 
And item number three, computer models predict that Earth microbes may have seeded life on Saturn's moon Titan. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Jay, you, you spoke first, oh, so why God. don't you go first? And begin. Okay, so uh, my gut reaction when I heard the very first one about the uh, the microbes being able to convert plastic into gasoline, um, although I don't believe it is physically impossible, I don't. Be- I, that's the one I really just don't think is is holding any merit right now. Why you ask? Uh, it's too good to be true. That's it. I, that's that's my gut reaction. I don't, I, you know, I really can't prove or disprove anything, obviously, but that's what I'm going with. Number one, the the too good, the too to, be good true, to be true. Is there a logical okay. fallacy in that? <laughs> Personal uh, credulity. Uh, no. Arguing from final consequences. No, okay. it, when you're making an educated guess, I mean, it's, it's you can go off of that. I mean, that's a legitimate thing to. Because you, you're reaching for anything to go off of. It's a red flag. Something that sounds too good to be true is certainly right. so a there reasonable you go. red flag. But don't forget, don't forget though, Steve could hope that you do that. And I expect him to do that. Trick you, trick but you I that also way. expect him to expect <laughs> that I'm going to do that, and then it kind of cancels oh, itself okay. out. <laughs> it's an infinite regression yes. of expectations. Okay, Perry, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to say that number three... Yeah, it doesn't sound right to me. I don't see the other two sound plausible. You know, uh, this one this one sounds the least plausible. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, an astronomer and a biologist. I don't play one on this podcast, but I it, it just it simply has the patina of the least. But Steve, least you didn't plausible. say a number Already. three that they have any proof that they're just speculating, right? Well, computer, computer models. models predict that Earth microbes <laughs> may have seeded life on Saturn's moon, Titan. I don't trust yeah. them computers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, what do you think? Um, okay, um, let's see. Microbes, did you say they bioengineered microbes? Yep. Newly bioengineered bacteria can make usable gasoline yeah. from plastic waste. That sounds familiar. I think I read something about that, so I'm going to... I'm going to say that's true. That's that's ringing a big bell for me. Uh, the third one, uh, that uh, computer models predict that uh, that microbes might have uh, seeded Titan. I, I you know I've recently heard or read something about that as well. But you you had a key phrase here, Steve. Let me clarify. You said may have seeded yeah. or could have. Both would be okay. Okay. I mean, actually, actually, it's may and could. They both apply. Okay. You know, I th- I think I I saw something on that recently as well too. Um, I even remember some sort of graphic simulation of of how it, how it could have happened. Uh, the second one though initially sounded right, but I think I think methane's wrong. You know, these these microbes did induce some sort of global warming, and they they were big contributors to uh, to the uh, content of our atmosphere as it is today. But I don't think it was methane. Let's see. So I'm going to go with two. Okay, so we got one for one. One for two, and one for three, an even split. Uh, Evan, unfortunately, had to step away, so he's dodging this one. Uh-huh. So no, no tiebreaker. All right, so where Which should we start? Which one do you pick, one. Steve? <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's start with number two. Oh, crap. Uh-huh. <laughs> that one is true. That is science. Was it methane? Uh, yes, it was methane. Um, so new... Um, both you know, fossil evidence and models show that a lot of bacteria do produce methane as a, as I'm, a byproduct. I'm living proof as of a that. Waste so go on. 
and and that's true, <laughs> and, they, and that's a major bacterial produced methane is a major contributor of flatulence. They uh, and they do put that into the atmosphere. They are the major contributor of methane in the atmosphere. And what they, what they figured out also is that that was an important component of global warming. Now this is of course, you know, most of global warming is actually good for our planet. It, it keeps us from being frigid. You know, we would be um, much less hospitable to life if we didn't have the global warming that we do. And this, but the inter, the new bit too was the the 3.5 billion years. They kind of knew that this kind of that this thing was happening, that bacterial-produced methane was warming the atmosphere early on, uh, but the, there's now evidence that it's a, this is occurring about 700 million years earlier than they had previously estimated, wow. pushing it back further to the, to the dawn of our planet. You know, 3.5 billion years is pretty close to the beginning of life on this planet. The planet itself formed about 4.5 billion years ago. So that one is true. Let's go from there to number one. Who said number one was? Uh, I did. Jay said that's fiction. Jay, you are correct this week. That is fiction. Oh my god! Ding 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 ding! <laughs> Congratulations. So that's I'm impossible. Going to um, <laughs> there, this is, however, and I'm not surprised this rang a bell for you, oh, Bob. There's there there bacteria <laughs> do metabolize a lot of organic compounds and a lot of fossil fuels. There are bacteria that can eat gasoline. Right. Uh, and in fact, they're using those, and this may even ring a bell for you. They're 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 trying to use them to clean up like oil spills and stuff. They just yeah, we've been hearing that one for yeah. years. Yeah, I mean they 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 so there there are, uh, and there are also bacteria that eat waste. Um, in fact, there was a new they've they this is kind of where I got this from. They bioengineered a bacteria that could eat styrofoam, and turn wow. it and turn it into uh, a biodegradable you know waste product. There are also bacteria that can make natural gas, like methane. So you can use it to make some fossil fuels, natural gas, to eat some kinds of waste, to eat gasoline. You know, plastic is an, is is a natural because that's uh, um, it's oil based. It's oil based, so it's not unreasonable that bacteria can eat plastic. This may become true one day. I don't know, uh, but I could not find anything that this has actually happened to date. So that that bit was made up. So what do I get? Um, you get a, a hearty handshake and congratulations, <laughs> and you get bragging rights for six days. Do I get a laurel and hearty laurel handshake? Laurel and hearty handshake. <laughs> Jay, you now, jumped on my line. Yeah. Sorry, on. buddy. Number three is very interesting. This is true. Number three is true. Uh, what what they did was they said, "Is it would it be possible for microbes to survive the trip from Earth?" to any of the places in our solar system where it's possible for there to be life, for life to then take a foothold. Um, specifically, looked at Titan, and they looked at Europa. They, they didn't look at Enceladus, because that information is too new. What they found was that microbes could, in fact, survive, that the speed at which a meteor from Earth would strike Titan uh, would be slow enough that microbes could survive the trip. On Europa, however, they predict they probably wouldn't survive. Why? That's a good question. <laughs> the reason is <laughs> that Europa is is close to Jupiter, closer than Titan is to Saturn, and that it's Jupiter's a lot bigger. Yeah. And the, and the gravity of Jupiter would accelerate the meteor. Uh. It would hit about twice as fast, and, and would and would kill from heat it's said and the impact would probably kill or destroy any microbes on impact so 
probably could not seed Europa with Earth microbes, but we probably could seed Titan with Earth microbes. The other aspect of, of, of this modeling was they looked at specifically the debris that was probably kicked up from the Earth by the, the meteor or comet that hit the Earth 65 million years ago and was probably responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs and many other species at, at that time, the uh, Cretaceous extinction. So they, they, what they, the computer models predict that uh, probably about 20 chunks of rock from the Earth would have hit Titan uh, after that impact and that it would have taken about a million years to make the journey. Hey, so, Steve. Yes. How about if the exact opposite thing happens? Well, Jay, yeah, that's not new. I mean, this is, if you remember going back a number of years, five or six years, um, scientists found an asteroid in Antarctica, a meteorite in Antarctica, that was from Mars. And, the, and they thought they might have seen, like, fossilized microbes in the, in the meteorite. Mm-hmm. And to think it was, oh, maybe life got a foothold, an early foothold on Mars and then was seeded to the Earth. Uh, that claim still remains controversial. The, 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 those fossilized microbes could just be air bubbles, you know, or some kind of geological formation. It really hasn't been proven or disproven at this point, uh, but never really got, gained general acceptance, you know, upon uh, a peer review. But the, but the, the, the theory of panspermia or, you know, one planet seeding another remains viable. Uh, it's possible that any planet that could have harbored life in the early solar system be, through planetary impacts could have seeded any or all of the other, you know, bodies in the solar system with microbes. Mm-hmm. You know, if we go to Titan and we find microbes and they have DNA, well, then probably that well, came no. from Earth. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting, and 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 the seeding could have taken place in more than one time. Mars could have seeded Earth, which then could have later seeded Titan or Mars or whatever in any pattern. It's also possible, and this is where it gets really interesting, that microbes from another solar system could have seeded our solar system. Uh, this is where you get sort of the panspermia theory that life in the in microbial dormant form hiding inside chunks of ice and rock can be spreading throughout the entire galaxy. I could have relatives on Titan. <laughs> Very distant. Very distant, relatives, yes. Very distant relatives. Um, so, uh, Jay wins the prize this week uh, the, for being skeptical of the gasoline-making bacteria. But the other two things were, were in fact, correct. Jay, did you use your telepathic powers to cheat? No, I paid Steve five bucks for the answer about two hours ago. Uh, okay, excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, I'll start the bids for next week's answers. Yeah. <laughs> Steve's <laughs> cheap, you know. <laughs> next. I think we have time for one more one more item before we, we sign off. I've actually been holding on to this for, for a little while. I just haven't had time to squeak it into the podcast. Bob, you sent me this one. Yeah. Uh, the article is called Bedrock of Faith is Jolted. Why don't you give us a summary of that? Yeah, this is this is very interesting. I found this at uh, latimes.com by uh, William... Lobdell, uh, the the tagline here: DNA tests contradict Mormon scripture. The church says the studies are being twisted to attack its beliefs. Uh, I, th- I just thought it was a very interesting story of uh, of science actually obliterating uh, people's faith in their religion. Uh, mm-hmm. Something that kind of I don't know. It just seems like something that should happen a little more often. Uh, <laughs> but it just um, 
it doesn't. It's the the way you know human psychology. People will just hold on to uh, their cherished beliefs, regardless of what science says. But the idea was. Um, let me give you a little background of uh, of the Mormon Church here. According to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, an angel named Moroni. A very interesting name for a, for an angel, I Maroney? thought. Moroni. Moroni. M- it's an angel or a mob guy. Morona, I think it's how you pronounce it. Oh, pronounce, oh that sounds a little more uh, religious. Moroni led... It's about time you got to pay up for the big man upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> so this, uh, this angel led Joseph Smith in 1827 to uh, a divine set of golden plates that were apparently buried near his house in New York. Now, now what are the... How convenient. Now, yeah, what are the odds of a divine set of golden plates near your house? Come on, buried in the ground. It, what pretty amazing so the, so god essentially provides this guy with also a pair of glasses also pretty weird and seer stones that allowed him to translate the reformed egyptian writings on these plates and he turned this into the book of mormon another testament of jesus christ and in this in this uh in this book they spend a lot of time talking about the the tribe of jews that sailed from Jer- jerusalem and came to the New World in 600 B.C. and split into two warring factions, and these warring, warring factions kind of obliterated each other with uh, uh, one group kind of remained called the, uh, let's see, the Lamanites. They, they remained. And they were kind of like the, the, the evil victors, for whatever reason. They were the bad victors. The, uh, the defeated tribes were called the Nephites, who were, of course, pure in quotes, and officially, before 1981, they weren't called pure, they were called white. The idol-worshipping Lamanites uh, received, apparently, the curse of blackness, turning their skin dark. So it's definitely some some bigotry uh, in here. Um, Mm -hmm. By the way, just before you go on, uh, Joseph Smith had to give the golden tablets back to the angel Moroni, so... He didn't have them as physical evidence for I, the encounter, uh, only his word for oh, them. Oh, I wanted to go see them in his uh You don't museum. think you're going to keep them golden tablets, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, did he, take, did he take any pictures of them? No, sadly, this was before yeah, modern photography. That's too bad. <laughs> well, that with modern technology. Um, he didn't anticipate DNA technology <laughs> when he made his claims about this lost tribe of Israel. <laughs> Dope! You know what? I'm going to get drunk, go on a bender... Walk into the woods, come back out, and just start a religion. Jay, you know what? And if you had enough charisma and you were just psychotic enough, you could do it. You could do I it know. easily, easily. It's just, and, and how silly is that thought? Like, just think about all the people that have done that throughout history. And Jay, yeah. even if you weren't psychotic and didn't have much charisma, you could still get tax exemption. You could. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly true. I got to work on that one. <laughs> now this so. The bottom line. Let me continue Bob. here. All right, this 175-year-old uh, transcription is regarded as as literal and with and without error. It is it is pretty much the you know transcribed word of God, and uh, it's it's w- without fault. So missionaries would would go to uh, to, like, to the Pacific Islands, and this would be their main selling point. You you are the lost tribe of Israel. You have a special place. Uh, you have a special place with God, and you're special. So this is like their prime selling point. And there were there are millions of followers. Literally millions of people became Mormons because they believed that they were this lost tribe of Christ. And now, of course, with modern DNA te- technology, they've, uh, they've examined a lot of these uh, Pacific Islanders, and they've determined that, no, they are, they are not, you know, they're from Asia. They're not from the Middle East. 
and which pretty much in just you know one fell swoop just blows that argument right out of the water. They cannot possibly be the lost tribe of Israel, and a lot of people are just having. I mean, you could imagine, you know, your whole religion is pretty much torn from under you with just this one test. Pretty much, I mean, I mean, if you think this book is the literal word of God, and it says A, B, and C, and science says no, there is no A, B, and C. I mean, what are you, what are you to believe? So I just thought I, I, I haven't noticed the Church of Mormon disbanding. No, oh no, it, it would take even well, more here, than that. Well, officially the response is, don't you believe it? <laughs> it the, officially, the Mormon Church says that nothing in the Mormon scriptures is incompatible with DNA evidence, and that the genetic studies are being twisted to attack the church. Okay. Ignore the uh-huh. man behind the curtain. Of course. <laughs> Man, that's that evil old pesky science again getting <laughs> yeah. in the way. You know what, they, guys, you know what's so funny? You know what just I love? Science is such a pain in the ass to so many true believers. It is such a thorn in the side of yeah. so many people. They just can't stand the fact that there is something out there that is that is just you can't argue against it logically, so they just have to be illogical about their response to it on every, every turn. The faith in many cases is illogical at its roots. It's the nature of the creature. It yeah, I mean, my, even it, theologians admit that faith is fundamentally irrational. Irrational. Right. Correct. Um, but, you, you know, it's a philosophical point you could debate. You have to be a w- a willing to accept the uh, the irrational. It'll be interesting to watch this unfold. This isn't a creationism issue again. Again, we don't really care officially what faith people have. We're not... Was an anti-religious or irreligious per se. You know, we this show and and our our group we're about science, scientific skepticism. Uh, but there are times when religious dogma comes right up against scientific evidence, and when that happens, of course, it is our view that you know religion should not dictate or make claims about the factual state of nature in the world. That's the purview of science. When religion so, crosses the line and makes testable claims, right. we have the right to look at it. Exactly. So this this turned out to be a testable claim, not when Joseph Smith made it, but now, you know, whether or not the uh um the Pacific Islanders are were descended from Israelites or not. Now we tested it, they're not. The only conclusion you could possibly make is that that portion of the Mormon scripture is simply incorrect. Now, it's up to the Mormon. This is the real test. So what do they do? How do they respond to that? Either they just ignore it, they dismiss it somehow, they kind of twist it to, to fit what they want, or you have to take a somewhat more nuanced, contextual view of the scriptures and say, well, they're not literal, they're metaphorical in some sections, whatever. What do you say? Well, you or reinterpret. You reinterpret. What did it say? They came yeah. from Asia? You say, well, you know, okay, maybe they went there, but they crossed here first, and they came from Israel, and then they moved here. Whatever. You reinterpret. Whatever. Blur, you blur yeah. the lines a little. Yeah. Well, right here, guys, yeah. it says that the, the church has subtly promoted a fresh interpretation of the Book of Mormon intended to reconcile the DNA findings with the scriptures. So, I mean, that just, just makes sense that would, they would try to uh, yeah. salvage something from this and try to. But I mean, if this is the you know this is the word of of, of God and they're and that, now they're just trying to well, like you said, Steve, they're trying to look at it more contextually and not as literally or another interpretation. This has happened over the last three, four hundred years. Religion has been in this slow, steady retreat from science in terms of specific claims. You know, this is you know three, four hundred years ago. This is the Catholic Church facing Galileo, right? right? It's yeah. the same thing. Yep. 
Um, they, the church had their dogma. Galileo said, well, you know, just look through this telescope and you could see that no, we don't have to look through that telescope. It's, you know, we, we know what's true because the, the authority tells us what's true. Except now, Steve, the church can't get away with killing people and, you know, and uh, blaspheming scientists and making, ruining their As lives. As we said, the slow, steady retreat from religion yeah. is also a slow, steady retreat from theocracy, except, of course, in the Muslim world. Right. Well, they're a little behind. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, often but it's, you know, it's, uh, obviously, it's religion retreating outside of the arena of science is what we advocate. And, if, you know, if religion wants to continue to have an active and positive role in human civilization, you know, they need to find a way to do it without stepping on the toes of science, basically. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. that conflict will rage, and I believe based upon the last s- several centuries of history, that science will win that fight because science has a distinct advantage in, in that it has an actual relationship with reality. You know, and over time, <laughs> that it's, it, first of all, it's objective. Well you know, one person could actually objectively confirm the findings of science and debate them with somebody else, whereas faith is dogmatic. You either believe or you don't believe. There's no objectivity to it. So that, that, that gives it a power... That gives it a longevity beyond, you know, the, uh, uh, the dogma of any particular, you know, religious group. So, I think that this this process will play itself out with in, in the Mormons as well as we're seeing here. Science will win. Reality trumps superstition. It does. Reality in the end trumps all. That's all. There's no avoiding reality. As hard yeah. as people try. That's why this podcast is your escape to reality. Right. That's where reality is what it's all about. And on that note? On that note, we are out of time for the week. Uh, guys, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again, yeah. Steve. Bob, Perry. Good podcast. Jay. Evan, wherever you are. Sorry you had to leave us early. All right. Uh, but th- thanks for joining us. Uh, until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theness.com. You can send us questions, comments, and suggestions to podcast at theness.com. Theorem is performed by Kenetto and is used with permission.